But then cars and girls got to be interesting, so coins went by the wayside. And then cars and girls got to be paid in the butt, so coins came back. So me and my buddy Bill started buying and selling old coins just out of our house. You know, put a little small ad in the newspaper, so I'm dating myself. This is Chan with The Plan, the podcast, a podcast providing career advice and easy, actual steps for frustrated professionals, helping you overcome career challenges so you stop feeling confused and defeated and start feeling focused and confident in order to excel in your career. I'm your host, Max Chan. Now let's dive into the episode. Hey, Jason. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Max. Appreciate you having me. How are you doing on a fine Sunday? Oh, man, it's great. Wife's birthday party was yesterday, so I had a good time with that and kind of cleaning up and that kind of stuff afterwards. Fantastic. And in terms of why I decided to bring you on, you've had a journey, a career journey that spans like multiple industries. And my podcast is about helping professionals overcome common career challenges. And one of the common career challenges that professionals face is transitioning into a new type of career, whether it's moving different industries or moving different roles. So you've had a couple of pivots in your career, and I wanted to bring you on for you to share your experience with that and provide some guidance for people that are listening right now that are looking to make a career change. When we talked offline, you started in the Navy first. So tell me about how you got your start in the Navy. Sure, absolutely. So I, I enlisted the Navy when I was 17 years old, right out of high school, turned 18 in boot camp, and that was not a fun, fun choice there. But Basically, there was nothing to do in my little bitty hometown in Alabama. The best job was working at the peanut mill and not knocking anybody that's working at a peanut mill, but that just wasn't what I wanted to do. So I knew I had to do something to get out and knew I didn't have the discipline to go to college. Had a, a small little scholarship for photography, but knew that wasn't you know going to get me through college. And even if I could get in and pay for college, I knew I wasn't going to make it. Just I didn't have the discipline to do it. So the uh, military seemed like the smart way to go. So then it comes down to, hey, you know, which service do you want to go into? And I interviewed all four services at the time, and Navy seemed to be the one that was the best fit for me. You bring up a good point in terms of like going to school. You realize that you weren't disciplined enough to do the schooling part. A lot of uh, parents always encourage their kids to go to school, but that might not be the best option just based off what their strengths are. So what is your opinion about that when it comes to like helping their children, give them more guidance in terms of, finding a proper direction than just throwing the, oh, you're done high school, you got to go to university, you got to go to college. Yeah. Uh, so it took me, and I had this exact same conversation with my daughter a week and a half ago, two weeks ago. She's 19, graduated about a year ago, but it took me nine years to get a four-year degree. So it's not for everybody right then. Do I think you probably should have a degree? Most likely, yes, especially if you've got the ability, the resources to get it. But you know, it's right out of high school. You may not have the time. You may not have the money. You may not have the ability to do that based on what your family situation is or your personal situation. So if you can, you, you do it. But if you can't, I get it. All right. So what are some alternative options that you said joining the military was one option? What would be other options for someone listening right now that don't think that going back to school is the right route? I, mean, I think you go the default to what is it that you enjoy? And then can you monetize what it is that you enjoy? Maybe it's a good segue into that. My second career was buying and selling old coins or the technical term is numismatist. So while I was active duty Navy, one of my buddies that sat next to me was a big coin collector. And I collected coins way back in the day, back with my grandpa, you know, Buffalo Nichols and stuff of that kid did not change. But then cars and girls got to be interesting. So coins went by the wayside and then cars and girls got to be paid in the butt. So coins came back. 
So me and my buddy Bill started buying and sell old coins just out of our house. You know, put a little small ad in the newspaper, so I'm dating myself. And we started, you know, buying coins and going to shows and selling them and trying to sell them online. And it got to the point where like, you know, we probably need to open up a shop. So we opened up a coin shop and started, you know, realized all the logistical challenges of that and then grew that into a chain of three shops. So we had a, a chain of three retail coin establishments. Eventually my partner bought me out. But you're know, finding something that you enjoy that you can make money at, I think, is, is key. So you started finding an interest in coins during your time in Navy. Is that what you said earlier? Well, I enjoyed them as a kid, but then the uh, enjoyment came back later. Got it. All right. And you were in the Navy for 20 years. You can correct me if I'm wrong here, but usually if someone stays in the Navy that long, they tend to go all the way to the retirement, right? But for you, what this made you decide that you wanted to branch out of the Navy and do something else? So I did retire from the Navy. So I do get a retirement check from the Department of Defense every month, which is nice because it pays a you know, good chunk of the bills. The coins started up while I was still active duty, probably probably six or seven years prior to retirement. So it, I had a good established you know income stream from that, which made it very comfortable for me whenever I was ready to retire from the military. I did not have to go find another job in, in the engineering field, which is what I worked in. And I, I was tired of engineering 20 years of anything is too long for somebody, I, in, at least for me. So I was ready to do something different. And then you said like, as a kid, you were interested in coins and then the interest came back as you got older during active duty in the Navy. And then once you retired, then you started to like start your own coin shop. You said three locations, right? Correct. Exactly. Three locations. Okay. So for someone who wants to like dive into a passion, a deeper passion or rekindle a passion in their childhood, what is some uh, business advice that you provide there? Because again, there's a difference between liking something as a kid and actually turning it into a business. For example, like if you are into painting, painting on the side as a hobby is a lot different than owning a painting business, whether it's uh, a paint shop, a paint lounge, or a paint store. So what are your advice on that? So obviously it has to be something that is does have some monetary potential there, right? You know, like you said, you know, not everybody's going to be able to sell paintings for a tremendous amount of money. It's good. So it's going to be something that's monetizable. And I think more important or just as important is you've got to decide and put in the discipline to become the best possible person that, you know, for that, for whatever it is. So like, Whenever someone would walk into the coin shop to talk to me about coins, you know, I, hey, I inherited all these coins from grandpa. Grandpa passed away 10 years ago. We found a shoebox. There wasn't anything in that box that I couldn't talk intelligently about because I put in the time and the effort, the hours, the resources, the study, and the classes, and the books in order to be the expert on it. Now, of course, you do that with a humble mindset of, hey, there's always more to learn. But whenever you're dealing with a client, you've got to show them that you're sharp as a tack and you know what you're talking about. And the only way you do that is by really putting in the hours and the effort to get that level of knowledge to where you can provide that service to a person that really needs it. So in terms of the, the, the coin business, right? Like you used to collect coins when you were a kid and then you're trying to turn it into a business and you have to evaluate the value of coins. So how did you start building up that skill set so you know what the valuation is of these coins that you're seeking or selling, so to speak? Yeah, I would say it's a combination of several things. One is the books, right? There's a lot of references out there that have been published by people that are way smarter than me that talk about coins. Then there's keeping track of the market. And the market is, hey, you know, what are they actually selling for online? And, and you look at something online and, oh, this coin's worth a million dollars. No, it's 
the coin shop was a continual management disappointment. Everybody thought they had the next winning lotto ticket in their pocket when they walked in. So it's a matter of understanding what's the true market value of that coin or whatever it is that you're selling, right? I mean, if you're selling hot dogs, you're selling mortgages, you're selling real estate, you're selling you know, stamps, you're selling whatever, you're selling crypto, whatever it is that you're selling, you've got to understand what the true market value is. What, you know, two people get together, what's one woman to sell for, what's one person willing to buy for? Not just what some random website said, something has you know, is value. So it's, you know, books, it's getting into the market and it's doing a significant amount of research to really grasp the whole concept of whatever the industry is. And how many hours did you dive into the research and knowledge obtainment before you felt confident enough to try to start making a business out of coins? I don't know that we were anywhere near confident enough to do whenever we started. It was one of those where, okay, well, let's figure out what we can do. And then after, you know, a bazillion mistakes, then you start really getting confident. You know, I say everything I know, I've learned one mistake at a time, whether it's my mistakes mostly or by someone's mistakes. So I, I don't know that I could ever say I was truly confident. But you got to start somewhere. And as long as you've got a good heart, you're in it for the right reasons, you'll be fine. Yeah. Again, I think one of the common things that people do is they're trying to achieve perfectionism before they actually start implementing, right? Like one of the common sayings is that no one rewards you for being a master class ready, right? So what is some advice that you can give in terms of some people that are thinking about this idea? They've done a bit of research, but they're still not confident in themselves to want to take that leap. You got to understand yourself. Are you confident enough? of your abilities, are you going to be doing the right thing by people? And do you understand the potential pitfalls for whatever it is? So for like coins, to relate to coins, you know, I remember a $3,000 mistake where I bought a couple coins that were counterfeit. They were gold coins, they were real gold, but they were counterfeit. So the value of the coins were simply the gold intrinsic value, no collector value whatsoever, but I've paid the person based on a percentage based on the collector value. And lost my butt on it. You know, I lost three, four thousand dollars. I don't remember exactly how much, but that was that really stung. So at that point, that motivated me to go buy another book and go get amazingly smart on that aspect of things. Going back to the perfectionism part about like, because you had that failure, so to speak, where you you lost three thousand dollars. A lot of people are afraid to fail, so people tend to not want to try new things because the rate of failure is a lot higher doing something that you're not familiar with compared to being comfortable staying in your comfort zone. So how have you overcome? of failures such as this to make you stronger in the long run? Personally, how I overcome failure is throwing out the pros and cons on a piece of paper and figure out, hey, is the risk worth the reward, right? You know, not everybody can do that. You know, as you mentioned, that there's lots of people listening that may not be able to do that or just are stuck or afraid. And I'll say, if you're truly that afraid, maybe you shouldn't be an entrepreneur. Maybe you shouldn't, you know, step out on your own. Maybe you should stay an employee. But if you're willing to make those sacrifices. I don't know who said the quote, but I love it. It's, you know, an entrepreneur is someone willing to work 80 hours a week for themselves before they work 40 hours from somebody else. So if you've got the mentality that you're willing to bust your butt, you're willing to put in the hard work more than anybody else in that field that you're interested in, then yeah, go for it. It's going to work out. If you're not that guy, if you get smacked on the knuckles by a ruler and you're like, okay, well, I'm never going to do that again. Well, then that's probably not your ballywick, right? You know, go be a good employee and go do good things somewhere else. Like social media has really mass marketed entrepreneurship. How like if you're an employee, then you're not doing too well, right? Like you're considered a failure in society, but that's not really the case. Again, not everybody can be an entrepreneur because some people are just not like huge risk takers. So for someone who realizes that it might not be for them, but then they feel like 
stuck as an employee. What's your thoughts on that? Is it more about like retraining your mindset to find out what are other things that you could do to maybe balance yourself as an employee? For example, maybe doing a side hustle. So at least you're still doing like different passion projects while you're having a steady income, whether it's weekly or biweekly. Yeah, I would offer that the mentality there is they're not fulfilled in something. So, you know, whether it's they're not fulfilled with the work they're doing, or maybe they're not doing something productive for society, like they're not doing something for a charity, they're not doing something for their family, maybe they're not doing what they should be doing for their own health, maybe they're not doing what they should be doing for their own family, maybe they're not doing what they should be for whatever organization they find you know, appealing to them, like I'm involved with two different veteran-centric charities, maybe they're not doing what they really should be doing as an employee. So if they're not fulfilled, I would say look internal first to see what it is that you're really not fulfilled in. And it's maybe entrepreneurship. It may be you just want to make more money. It may just be that you're not doing what you probably ought to be doing for your own responsibilities that you currently have. Going back to your coin shop, you were able to expand to three shops. So can you walk us through how you made the decision to scale and grow your business that way compared to some people might just be just happy with one shop compared to like trying to like expand and have multiple locations? Yeah, I think on growth, you have to follow demand. So I was getting a lot of business from a different town that was about a two hour away. And I was driving to that town to meet with clients. And most of the business was buying coins throughout you know a month. And then you sell some online, you know, in your retail presses, then you would go to, you know, to trade shows. I would go to coin shows all over the country, mostly Southeast, but all over the country. And I was going to this particular town over and over again and making really nice, buying nice quality inventory from individuals in that town. So I'm like, you know, it's probably time to go put a retail presence in that location in order to meet the demand that I'm getting from that. So we did that, did that for a year. And they were like, well, all right, so we figured out how to run another business, which is doubling your locations is probably eight times the amount of effort that it takes us. It's not a linear relationship whatsoever. And after we figured that out, we you know, had a lot, it licked a lot of wounds in that first year, critically analyzed, self-analyzed. And we're like, okay, well, we screwed this up. Let's take a look at this other location possibly expand there. So we started analyzing the demand that we were getting from that particular location and it made sense. We threw out another location and we really started analyzing it on the lessons learned from the first two expansions. We're like, no, if we go there, it's going to be, you know, we don't think we have a high chance of success there. So it's figuring out what you're doing and then writing down your lessons learned, critiquing, hey, we screwed this up. How do we screw it up? What could we have done better? What should we have done smarter? What are we going to do to prevent that from happening again? as you're thinking about doing those expansions. You mentioned previously that you started this coin business with a partner. What made you decide to choose a partner instead of just going it on your own? I didn't have anywhere near the knowledge. My partner, Bill, was significantly smarter than I was in the coin world, but Bill did not have much business acumen whatsoever. And at that point in my life, I had already owned a couple other businesses and I had a good bit of money saved up. And this was 2004, 2005, so it's a while back. I had owned some other businesses with other people. So I was talking to Bill about what he was doing and he's like, well, yeah, I'd like to do this as a business, but I don't know anything about business. I don't have anything saved up. I'm like, well, how about I be the business guy, you be the, the technical guy. And we figured it out and we operated on a handshake for 15 years and we're still buddies. Um, he ended up buying me out due to some other directions I wanted to go, but I still consider him a very close friend. And 
we operated everything off a of handshake and not, I'm not recommending you do that, but it worked for me. How do you find a good partner? Like what are some traits that you should look for? You have to look for somebody that has the same morals that you do. I mean, that's the very first thing is the integrity and morals of it is, you know, is there any doubt in your mind that this person, this potential partner is not going to be the same, operate from the same center as you do? If you can't definitively say 100%, yes, that person is going to be that way, then you run fast, far away from that. You know, right now I own a restaurant with my wife and we've had a couple of people approach us, you know, to become partners in it and... Every time we do that, we sit down with them. There's you know something off. There's something that doesn't quite work right. Or we start pulling the string on their background. And we're like, no, it's probably not the best option for us. If you want to buy us out, great. But I don't think we want to do a partnership with you. The one thing you mentioned about your partner, Bill, is that you were the business person and Bill was the technical guy. I think one of the common examples of a strong partnership is you have different fields of expertise. So you don't really overlap with each other. I find that if there's two business people or two technical people, there tends to be more clash and thoughts because they both think that they're the expert. Yeah, you're hundred percent right. You, and you've got to lay out those due responsibilities. I love that book called E-Myth Revisited. I don't, I don't know if you've heard it before. It's, it's a great book. I wish I'd read that thing 27 years ago. It's why small businesses fail. And it just goes through, you know, you've got to have the processes and procedures in place before you hire, before you partner, before you do anything with somebody else, you've got to have all that very well laid out in order to make sure that all the expectations are well-defined and there's no room for just, you know, if there's going to be disappointments because someone failed to meet their agreed upon standard. When it comes to going from Navy to corporate or owning a business in the coin space, what are some transferable skills that you developed in the Navy that made you be stronger when you started your career in the coin business? The Navy really gave me a strong technical background and that you had to define everything the way it was going to be, the way it should be, and how to verify that it is as it is. And so my background, I was a start off as an electrician, nuclear electrician in the Navy, and then became an officer. And I basically did regulatory oversight kind of thing. So I was able to translate those skills from the military into, I think, whatever I want to go into. And I think that my businesses that I've had thus far have been very successful because of that. Great. And speaking of moving into a different direction, because you, you said like Bill bought you out because you want to move into a different direction. I'm assuming that's when you started to get into mortgages. So how did you get into this new industry in the mortgage space? I think nearly getting into any new thing is purely an accident. So if we go even back before coins, I actually had my real estate license for a couple of years. I got it because of divorce and I was bored because I didn't have my kids all the time. So I'm like, you know, I need something to fill my time. So I'm like, I was thinking about getting back into real estate for a reason that, not to bore you or your client or your listeners with, but I was thinking about getting back into real estate, but I'm like, no, I don't want to get in my car and drive around all weekend and show people houses. So I was like, maybe I'll get into mortgages. So I called up my old mortgage guy from way back when, Wade, and said, hey, I'm thinking about getting into mortgages. What do you think? And he remembered our household and all stuff. He said, well, come down to the office and take a look at what we do. And he hired me and I enjoyed working for Wade for three years. And then in South Carolina, where I live, you have to be licensed loan originator for three years before you open up your own company. So at my three-year, one-day period, I you know, applied to open up my own mortgage company here. In terms of the real estate aspect, so I'm in Canada. I'm not sure if it's different in the U.S. when it comes to commissions. Real estates here, the commissions are a lot higher compared to mortgages. So what made you decide that, yes, mortgages do pay less, but again, there's less traveling compared to real estate where you're showing houses, but you get more commission from the house sale? So here in America, I think 
you could make the argument that mortgages pay less, but you could also make the argument that mortgages pay more. It depends on the corporate structure. Like whenever I was working for somebody else, then yeah, I made a whole lot less. I work for myself. You know, I get all the commission on the deal. And then there's realtors that I'll do a deal with and, and I see what the realtor commission is and, and I make more money per deal on that. Uh, but there's also times where I'll do a deal for near about free because I know I'm going to get more referral business out of that. So it's, you know, I'm not worried about the dollar per deal. I'm worried about, hey, is a viable business process and is it going to build and grow upon itself? Got it. So you learn the ropes working on somebody else as a mortgage agent before you start your own mortgage company. And then that's when you get like pretty much all the commission, right? And then work the deals that you think are suitable for you. Mm-hmm. All right. What was the difference between like the coin business and the mortgage business that you learned like right off the bat? Uh, the sales cycle. So the first thing I realized is, hey, you know what? Real estate or mortgages, both are not a one-time you know transaction, you know, one telephone call or one in-person handshake meeting transaction, you know, a mortgage, you know, the real estate mortgage industry is a 90 day cycle on the short end. And if, you know, someone could take, you know, six months or a year from the time you have the first conversation with them until they, they actually close on their deal. And then you obviously don't want them to forget about you. So it's keeping that relationship with them post-closing, you know, birthdays, anniversaries, loan anniversaries, that type of stuff. So that way you're front of mind or top of mind for them whenever they do hear of somebody that wants to buy or refi or if they want to sell and and buy or refi. So it's a much different relationship business. Speaking of sales cycles, uh, when someone starts in mortgages, real estate, or any type of long sales cycle of business, for example, like SaaS companies, if you're trying to sell like a, your SaaS product to a large corporation, the sales cycle does take a long time. So if someone's starting off, they're not making anything, if at all. I'm assuming for like as a real estate agent or mortgage agent, you don't have a base salary, right? Because uh, you yeah. work based off like the brokerage or under a mortgage company, right? So how do you weather the storm for the first, let's say, three to six months when you know that there's not a lot of money coming in because of the long sales cycle? So that's the discussion I have with some loan officers that want to come work for me. Some loan officers have told, hey, I'm probably not the best option for you. You know, Here in America, there are places that will give you a base salary and you'll make a very, very small commission. So like you go work for you know, a Wells Fargo or, or some brick and mortar and you'll have a, a small base salary. You have benefits and you have a desk and you have walk-in clients and maybe you make an extra 500 bucks per deal or something. And that's all fine and dandy. And that's not a bad way to start, honestly. I think you're starting somewhere, you've got to have you know, a no matter what industry you get into, whether it's mortgages, whether it's selling insurance, whether it's selling securities, whether it's selling you know, SaaS, whatever it is, you got to have someplace that's going to teach you and you got to have someplace that's going to provide you leads in the beginning because you're just not going to have that many people in your sphere of influence that want to buy that product. Or even if you do have enough people in your sphere of influence that want and need that product, they may not want to buy it from you because they don't know you in that professional manner and trust you to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars with you if they just don't have that mentality of you. So you've got to have to start off, you've got to have you know the support system of training and of lead providing. Right now, as you know, Saudis has a lot of the uh, Instagramification, right? So when it comes to making career pivots, they want to make more or the same that they are in the current field. You obviously, once you got bought out, you had to start from scratch as a mortgage agent, right? And some people don't really want to start from scratch in regards to taking a step back from what they were doing before. So what is your advice when it comes to Realizing that if you want to do something out of the ordinary, when it comes to like changing to a different field or space, and you do have to start over a lower salary, what's your advice in terms of like weathering the storm and the learning curves? Well, obviously you have to have you know, a cushion. You got to have you know, figure out what the industry average is for when you get to start making money. You know, like I tell everybody that's going to come work for me, it's a ninety day. You know, I think you're not going to get your first paycheck for at least three months. 
So you better have at least three months savings. And I'd recommend double that because you may not be as good as you think you're going to be. Or the market can change. You know, the market has changed significantly over the last two years. So people that got it in the last year, they may be struggling a lot more than somebody that was in the same point in their career four years ago or seven years ago. And everything's getting more competitive everywhere across America because the population's you know larger. People are getting smarter AIs out there, making it easier for people to, to do whatever it is they want to do. So you've got to way overestimate what it is that you need to do, and you've got to work way harder than you think you need to in order to be successful in whatever it is you're going to do. Speaking of a changing market conditions, you mentioned a good point about AI. I believe like there's some companies in the U.S. where you don't even need a real estate agent, right? Is it one of them? Whereas like you don't need a real estate agent, you actually like list your house and work without an agent. Is that one of the examples? So Zillow does make it very easy for sale by owner stuff to get where it is. I mean, there's for sale by owner companies. You know, I've bought and sold real estate with real estate agents, and I've bought and sold real estate without real estate agents. It really depends on your skill set and the complexity of the deal. And I do a lot of real estate deals as, as a mortgage guy, so I feel very comfortable. And I see some stupid agents as well. So I'm like, you know, I would, you know, why do I need to pay an agent? But like, if the deal is really complex, an agent's worth their weight in gold. So it really depends on the person's skill and the complexity of the deal. As a follow-up question, how can someone adapt to changing conditions? Because you said like the mortgage business has changed in the last couple of years, whether it's like the recession, inflation, or just more, or AI or different like tools or more competition, more certified mortgage agents. So how can one adapt to change properly so they can still stay and maintain their market share? Sure. So you got to, the first thing is getting signed up with every single publication or periodical that's in your industry. So you understand what's going on. I probably get seven or eight different emails a day. And I read most of them that are mortgage and housing related, like Housing Wire, National Mortgage Professionals America, good industry specific things. So whatever industry you're in, there's going to be some trade group or several trade groups or several companies that are selling subscriptions to things that provide good data of what's going on. And then second thing is developing a network of peers that are smart, professional, sharp, like-minded individuals, some that are more further along in the career than you, and some that are you know not as polished or refined or as experienced as you, and having that group of individuals that you talk to on a routine basis. Um, and the third thing is going to trade shows. I, you know, I go to several trade shows a year. I've got to the point where I'm a speaker, I'm a teacher on the circuit in several trade shows. I'll be in September. I'll be in Denver, Colorado, teaching at a trade at a mortgage conference, and I'll be teaching mortgage and realtors on processes and, and you know, planning your day and that kind of stuff. So it's a combination of periodicals, peers, and progression in you know, trade shows. Uh, speaking of peers, when someone starts off in a new career, they'll have to build up the network again, right? Because like, if they're in an old field, they've networked with people that, or they have a network of people in their old field, but when it comes to a new field, they might not know as many people. So what's your uh, advice in regards to finding the right mentors or the right support group to help you in the transition in this new career, whether it's changing industries or changing roles? You'll know the right mentor a couple minutes after you meet them. You know, it's someone that's got a teacher's heart and, you know, is successful and wants to be helpful. You know, there's coaches out there and I've used many coaches over the years and, and I've spent anywhere from a thousand bucks to $2,000 a month on coaches and, and every one of them was great. If you get into the coaching aspect, you know, want to utilize coaches, you, you got to define what it is that you're looking to improve upon and then find and interview coaches and ask them how they're going to help you with it, whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. You know, mentors, you know, would generally be somebody that's free, a coach is somebody that you're paying. And then also, I really believe that you don't understand something until you give it away. So finding other people 
that know less than you and you teaching them, guiding them, helping them is going to make you a better person, better student, you know, better teacher as well. So speaking of coaches, there are a lot of coaches out there. So I'm in the career space and there's a lot of career coaches. So what is your advice in regards to like picking the right coach? Because not all coaches are good. There's actually a lot of bad coaches, right? So how do, how do you vet the right ones to ensure that you are going to get your money's worth? Like for you, you've already said that every coach that you've worked with and paid for has helped your business or career. So how can people also be able to do that with their own coaching endeavors? Because again, coaching, as you said, is not a cheap investment. It's like you said already, it costs you about like one to two grand a month. And that could be a lot of money for someone that's starting off in their new career and not making that much. So what's your advice in terms of like finding the right coach for them in order to accelerate their learning curve and get more success faster? Yeah. So when you're starting off, you're not going to be able to afford a coach. So, you know, getting a networking group is probably a good option on that. Like I'm in BNI and I have been for years and my BNI group, you know, I've got people from all different types of industries and we bounce things off, off each other all the time. We get together for coffee and developing friends. Like I even have coffee once a month with a couple of my competitors here that will sit down and just, you know, share, you know, Hey, what's going on with you? How's the family? And then, Hey, you know, I had this loan that was really tough, or I learned this new thing. I had this deal that was going south. I figured this out. Even with your competitors getting chummy chummy and, and becoming buddies with them, I think is important. But if you're going to get into coaching, interviewing that coach, you got to understand exactly what you want to accomplish prior to it. So like my first coach was all about production and it was, Hey, what are the different realms of referral sources and how to manage those relationships with those referral sources. And then one coach was about, you know, whenever I started my own company, it was about establishing the processes and procedures to make sure that my loans were going through the pipeline in the right fashion. And then like the most recent coach that I had, her name was Christine. She had started up, I don't want to say 50 different branches for Annie Mac. I mean, she's an amazing woman, amazing producer, amazing coach. But I wanted to grow my company and start treating it like a branch at a bank. And so I could provide a better environment or better culture for the salespeople, the loan officers that, that trusted me to work for me. So I you know, hired her to help me to be the better leader for loan officers at my company. So it really depends on what is where you're at in your career and your company's progression. So when it comes to uh, people working under you, I'm assuming that everybody had had previous like mortgage or real estate experience and they're looking to pivot into the field of mortgages. How do you like interview or select the right type of person when they don't have the industry experience and this is their first time trying to get exposure in that field? Sure. So if it's a non-sales role, so I was called production or fulfillment department, I'm looking at, you know, people that can follow directions and are team players before I even interview someone. I've got a YouTube video that they watch that gives them tasks so I give them verbal tasks and it's basically very simple resume type stuff. And if they can perform those verbal tasks, then I'll interview them and most likely I'll hire them. But so many people either screw up the task or don't do the stuff. I know that either they can't follow directions well, or they don't have a level of care enough to follow directions well, whatever. So that weeds out people, the fulfillment part from the sales side, it's all about their heart. You know, I've had even two weeks ago, I had somebody who wanted to come work for me, big producer, I would have made a lot of money from him coming over the company, but the guy was a jerk. I'm like, you know, my company culture matters more than making an extra $7,000 from your employment here. If someone's not going to have that teacher heart, even with the processors, you know, I don't want that company climate in my office. 
So it's finding someone that's going to fit well. A lot of times what we'll do is we'll have a company lunch. You know, so we'll, we do company lunches pretty routinely. And if someone's thinking about coming over, I'm like, hey, what? we're going to have a lunch and we'll have, you know, sandwiches and, and chips and it's nothing fancy whatsoever sitting around the conference table and, you know, invite your know, potential employee and watch how they interact with other employees and watch how the employees interact with them. And if it's the oil and vinegar, then no, they're not going to get hired. If they fit in well, obviously it's going to be a good environment. I also like to ask on every job interview, tell me about your childhood. And I don't really care what the answer is. You know, they had a horrible childhood, an amazing childhood. I want to know, I want to see how they talk about their childhood. So if they grew up poor, like I grew up really poor, if they grew up poor and they're like, yeah, we didn't have anything. We didn't have two nickels to rub together, but man, my mom tried hard. You know, she tried, she got us whatever you know she could. She worked two jobs, whatever. I know that person is going to be a good team player. If they had a horrible childhood and they still talk horrible about their childhood, then, you know, obviously they still have a lot of things to go through. They're probably great people, but they're just not in a position in their season where I want to be around that. You know, if they had a great childhood and they talk poorly about, oh yeah, my dad was rich, but he, you know, we had to work hard for everything. Well, I don't want that person around. So it's, you know, understanding where that person is in life. Yeah, you made a good point about like the importance of culture fit. A lot of professionals think that when they go into interview, it's all about their skill set and their experience. But again, at the end of the day, like if they hire you, they have to work with you every day. And if you don't gel well with the team, it's not going to be a good fit. But again, a lot of professionals forget about the human aspect of the interview process and they just try to sell their uh, skill set and experience. Yeah, you're going to interact more with them than you do your spouse, probably, you know, based on, you know, going to sleep and what time you get home and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I don't want to be around that negativity. So for someone who's like looking to like move industries, and one of the things that I always suggest is having informational interviews with people in the industry or roles that you want. So if someone were to reach out to you and ask you about the mortgage industry, what type of questions would you want them to ask you so they are able to make an informed decision with their career? Yeah, man, they should be asking, hey, what's your day-to-day look like? What's the income potential? And say, hey, I've read it online, but what can I really earn? What does it take to really be a top performer? You know, and I tell people, hey, you got to be good at numbers. You got to be good with people. If you're not good at both of those, this is not the industry for you. But, you know, understanding what the day-to-day process looks like for whatever it is you're going to go into, what's the earning potential? If you're asking, hey, what are the qualifications? You, You haven't done enough research. You need to ask the strategic stuff, not the stuff you could find on Google. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's one of those things like, if you can find the answer on Google, it's not a good question. That, that's what I always say. Yep, exactly. So the, and the Navy SEALs are the same way. I mean, if, if you know, the Navy SEALs have an amazing website that explains everything that you need to become a SEAL. And if you go call up a SEAL and say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about, and they'll answer your call, I mean, and then they'll help. But if you start asking the, the stuff on the website, they're like, bro, you're wasting my time. You could do some research. You can come back when you're ready. Yeah, 100%. Like a lack of research is a lack of preparation. And you started a coin business, you started a mortgage company, they both had challenges. So what were some of the different challenges when it comes to starting up a coin business and starting up a mortgage company? I mean, getting your name out there is the first thing that's difficult, right? If you don't have clients, you don't have business. But the temperament to that is you can't outsell fulfillment. And I say that all the time in the office. Like, you know, I could go produce another 50 loans or if I produce an extra 50 loans in the next week and a half, we would choke. You know, I don't have the ability to add 50 loans to my pipeline right now based on staffing. So if I go hire somebody that's going to be a producer, I've got to be able to bring in, you know, support for that. So it's a double-edged sword, you know, whenever you're getting to a new industry or a new business or whatever, or opening up your own business in something you've already been in is understanding what the requirements are to fulfill 
the promise that you're going to give to that client and then building the processes and procedures to ensure that you can deliver that. And then once you have that baseline, then go out and do the marketing, do the SEO, do you do with the pay-per-click, do the trade shows, do the door hangers, do whatever it is that you think you need to do to get business. But you don't do that until you have the ability to provide wherever it is. Great. Jason, really appreciate you taking the time to share your career story when it comes to like making career pivots multiple times throughout your career. So I, I like to end my podcast with you with one last question that I ask uh, all my guests at the end. So my podcast is about helping professionals overcome career challenges, which I said earlier. So for you, throughout your career in the Navy, in the coin business, and in the mortgage company that you're currently running, what was one major challenge that you had to uh, go through, like a common challenge throughout your career that you had to overcome to get to where you are today? It's getting out of my own way and trusting people, right? If someone can do the job is 80% as, you know, as good as you can, let them do it. There's no way you can do everything. If you try to do everything, you're going to suck. And I've sucked a lot throughout all my careers. And until you get the point where you can trust people that work for you, that trust you, then you're at that point, you can be successful, but you've got to learn how to trust people. And for me, it was making sure they were educated and they would provide the tools to accomplish whatever tasks I needed them to accomplish. Yeah, I think one of the toughest things is delegating, right? Like some people tend to be micromanager. They want to like do everything themselves because so they don't trust people to do it for them. But again, there's only so many hours in the day. And if you're focusing on like administrative stuff, you can't really be the CEO. Like the saying is like, how can you be the CEO when you're acting like the administrator? So I split up my day into thirds. Since you said CEO, I call it CEO time. So it's working on your business. So working on your business, working for your business, working in your business. So like the very first beginning of the day is doing stuff that only a CEO would do. So like from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. is CEO time from 9 a.m. to about 1 p.m. is working for my business, which is generating sales, generating revenue. And then from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. is working in my business, which is taking care of loans, taking care of issues, taking care of employee stuff, that kind of stuff. Great. And how can people uh, learn more about what you do? And if they want to reach out when it comes to like mortgages, how can they reach out to learn more about your services? Yeah, sure. So I'm not licensed in every state, but I know somebody that is, and I don't get any type of referral fees. But if you want to give me a call, uh, super easy phone number is area code 843-LOW-RATE. Super easy phone number, 843-LOW-RATE. My email is jason at homeloansinc.com. Jason at homeloansinc.com. Can't believe that website was available for me, but super easy to get a hold of me. I try to be as responsible as possible. Call me, email me, text me, find me on Facebook, whatever, LinkedIn, whatever. <laughs> Appreciate it. All right, again, thank you so much for your time and your insights and uh, career pivots. And I hope that people who are listening to this episode will get some direction in terms of how they can move forward in their career. Awesome. Appreciate you, Max. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this content valuable, here's three ways I can help you achieve your career goals for free. First, subscribe to this podcast as I post two episodes a week. Number two, leave a five-star review as this helps build the credibility of the show so we can gain access to more influential people to interview and bring those lessons to you to help elevate your career. And number three, connect with me on social media. There's a link in the show notes for you to click on that compiles all my active social media accounts, making it easy for you to find me and connect with me. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, Thank you.